0: Thank you.
1: Hello and welcome back. We're on the final week of this series of our Freud in Focus podcast, where we've been reading Freud's 1907 text, Delusions and Dreams in Wilhelm Jensen's Gradiva. Now, as our regular listeners will know, we've been following Freud in this very close analysis of of this text and... It's a now relatively obscure novella that he's interested in, in Wilhelm Jensen by Wilhelm Jensen, um, and the the novella is called Gradiva, in which an archaeologist falls in love with a with a bas relief of a walking woman, and ends up traveling to Naples and discovering his lost love. Now, I mentioned that Jensen's novel is relatively obscure, but that's really only half true, as of course it's been very influential in the twentieth cent in twentieth century thought and art um but only really through Freud's reading of it now later on we're going to take a look at a couple of examples of this influence one from philosophy and literary criticism and then one from art history but first tom we're go- we broke off last week with the final part of Freud's paper to analyze um and We've seen over the past few weeks that Freud has continually been drawing parallels between the narrative of Jensen's Gradiva and and the findings of psychoanalysis. So in part four, Freud really drives this part home and focuses on the psychoanalytic cure itself. So Tom, how does Freud tie up the analytic loose ends of this text?
0: Well, right, um, Jamie. um... Well, you're absolutely right in the fact that this is this kind of last part is really the, the wrapping up of everything that that's gone before. Um, all of these loose ends kind of brought together. Um, so we start with this notion that uh, Freud says um, that Zoe emerges as a as a physician. You know, so this is like the key point for Freud, that Zoe is like a physician, not just any physician, of course, but but really a kind of psychoanalyst. Um, and then he, he kind of goes on and elaborates on this and says that, that this is not just a love story that's being kind of tacked onto an archaeological fantasy. It may look like that at first reading, of course. But there's actually something in the manner in which Zoe helps to bring Hanold out of his delusion. So that kind of sensitivity that she shows that Freud really wants to kind of zone in on here. And of course, he wants to draw a comparison between Bredeva's actions in the novella and the kind of technique uh, for treatment that that he and Breuer first developed, he says in his own words in 1895, and that treatment that was originally known as the cathartic method, but later became known as the analytic psychoanalytic method um so so how does he kind of justify this comparison then well what he really starts to talk about is the fact that, that zoe kind of helps to bring back norbert's childhood memories yeah these memories that were unconscious that norbert had forgotten mm-hmm. and that and that kind of bringing back these memories really mirrors the um what the analyst does with the unconscious repressed of the analysand so this is like the key the key thing the key purpose of of this um of this treatment really now of course there are some differences as well Zoe um she already knows of course about Norbert's previous relationship with her so she is the the original object of desire in a way but the analyst you know has no connection with the analysis and with the patient um what he has to what he or she has to rely on is of course what freud describes as a complicated technique yeah and this complicated technique can help gain access to the unconscious memories of the patient but key at this stage what freud says is one thing that they do have in common is once this uh, once the disorder you know once uh, the delusion is traced back to its origins so for for Gradiva, it's the origins of this childhood love and for the and for the analyst treating a patient it, it's the origin of their of their um, symptom. so once it's been traced back to its origin, it vanishes. so Freud suggests that going back and finding the origin of the symptom brings about in his words, a simultaneous cure. Now this is quite a radical phrase, right, for us now reading this, because we're really still in this kind of quite heroic early days of psychoanalysis, where it's almost as if once we discover the origin of a symptom, then we get this kind of immediate cure. Now, of course, over the over the years, Freud's become, Freud becomes much less sanguine about the course of treatment, um, particularly if you'll remember in that paper we read in Constructions in Analysis, And also in 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 his kind of late great kind of pessimistic masterpiece, analysis, terminable and interminable. Mm. And so in those papers, it's almost as if the notion, both the notion of origin itself and the notion of cure both become problematized. You know, how do is there really such a thing as an origin? And how do we really think about? cure in psychoanalytic terms is it just that something vanishes and disappears well it well it's clearly not later on in psychoanalysis things change and they move but it's not as if we're you know it's not a conjuring trick yeah mm. um so of course the other similarity uh between our story here and psychoanalysis is that kind of emphasis on the notion of love yeah the notion of love so Freud says that in the psychoneurosis, um, the, the inevitable cause in a way of the psychoneurosis or, or, the, or one of the factors is the repression of the sexual instinct. Yeah? And the processes, these techniques of psychoanalysis, and indeed in the narrative of the novel, is, um, is an attempt to arouse this repressed instinct. Once that repressed instinct has been aroused, then there's a struggle, of course, isn't there? A struggle ensues between the demands of that instinct, the kind of drive of that instinct, and the repressing forces that have been trying to keep it at bay. And hopefully, you know, if all goes well, if we have a a satisfactory conclusion, um, there'll be an an eventual kind of acceptance of those instinctual demands. Yeah. Even if... um, even if that might come about through a kind of violent manifestation of reactions in freud's words you know you will remember that um that famous phrase later on in freud's text where he says you know where id was ego shall be you know there's 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 a sense in which catching up with desire accepting repressed desire you know creates a kind of healthy subject i think in a sense so if we think about Um, the notion of love in this kind of wider psychoanalytic sense, kind of, the you know, that would later become Eros, of course. Freud says that the process of cure is accomplished in a relapse into love. Very nice kind of ring to that, a relapse into love. Mm -hmm. So going back into love, finding love again, just as in our text as well. And again, this is a quote from Freud. Every psychoanalytic treatment is an attempt at liberating repressed love, which has found a meagre outlet in the compromise of the symptom. I, I just think that's such a beautiful sentence, don't you think? I mean, yeah. you know, repressed, liberating repressed love that's found a meagre outlet in the compromise of the symptom. So the idea is that the symptom gives gives love you know gives sexual desire an an outlet but it's meager you know it's not enough and it and and the key thing is kind of to liberate you know that kind of thing and and allow it to kind of gain more access really have more have more um you know more release i guess you know um and just finally a couple of other things finally where freud sums up in this last part so you know of course, the comparison uh, between Grediva and the analyst, a bit like when he compared the archaeologist and the analyst in constructions in analysis, mm. the analyst has to go further than Grediva. Yeah. Because um because of course the end of the novel is is Hannah falling in love with Grediva in a way. And and um but that that is uh, that's not the end of analysis, of course. You know, we can't have analysans just in love with analysts for the rest of their lives and living happily ever after. You know, the analyst has to kind of decouple themselves, really, from the analysand. They have to become a stranger once again to the patient so that they're no longer the object of desire for the patient. Now, um, after the Dora case, of course, you know, this discovery of transference, Really becomes the key, one of the key concerns for psychoanalysis. So you know, what does the patient, and, and to to a certain extent, what does the analyst do with this newfound capacity to love? You know, that that I guess is the problem. You know, at, at the end of it, you know, what do we do with our love now? You know, it's quite an interesting question. You, it's not, it's not a happy ever after kind of you know scenario as it is in this novel. Mm. Um, and before I go on too long, I'm just going to say one more thing about the end of this, about the end of this um, passage, because um, Freud also writes about the fact that he contacts, uh, that one of his circle contacts the author of Wilhelm Jensen, the author of Gradiva, to ask whether he he's read about psychoanalysis and he knows about the psychoanalysis, um, psychoanalytic technique, particularly in light of the fact that this novel feels so psychoanalytic, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, and he, and he gets back somewhat brusquely, writes Freud, uh, in the negative. So uh, Willem Jensen doesn't know anything about psychoanalysis. Quite a surprise in a That's way. Because... so
1: interesting. <laughs> Sorry, I had no right. idea about this. So interesting.
0: <laughs> so he doesn't, yeah, he, he gets back and says, you know, shrugs his shoulders and says, what's all this about? No, it's not, you know, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> which, Which... Is it's is very interesting because you know what Freud has done throughout this, te- this analysis is he's pretty much mapped something onto something else, as if it's almost a correspondence, yeah. yeah. Um but of course, what Freud then says is, does that therefore make my reading inaccurate? You know, does it make it irrelevant? And of course he says no, because what he how he describes it is the author has basically listened to the impulses of his own unconscious. Yeah. Um, and he's produced a novel that's been inspired by that that kind of artistic intuition for this these kind of unconscious meanings and, and 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 drives and things. Um, but he hasn't codified them, yeah. He hasn't put them into scientific language. You remember Freud had said the poets and philosophers discovered the unconscious before me, and you know, all I did was discover discover a scientific method which to work with. Mm-hmm. Um that of course, the codifying is the job of the of the analyst. So you know it doesn't really matter if Jensen knows about all this stuff or not, because Jensen is in a way no longer the authority. Yeah, you know we're kind of entering into the realm of of text and subtext here in a way. Uh, the text has more in it than the author knows. Yeah, the text you know has all these unhidden meanings which the author themselves. In a way, doesn't have access to interesting, yeah. Because we're starting to think about the role of of the literary critic that will become so important in the twentieth century, of course, um, who acts a bit like the analyst. Yeah, they they make this kind of this subtext, this latent meaning manifest.
1: Mm Okay, that is all of this is extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. And I guess that takes us pretty much to the end of the main body of, of Freud's text as well. You know, Freud writes another paragraph defending his assertion that dreams are wish fulfillments and then finishes with the rather grudging last sentence, which reads But we must stop here, or we may really forget that Hanold and Grediva are only creatures of their author's mind it's it's almost as if all the complex and tight analysis over such an extended period of time you know we've 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 committed ourselves to reading freud but he, you know he still can't bring himself to let go of greteva and in fact there's even a, a postscript written by freud to this in, in 1912 um Gradiva, via freud seems to keep reverberating and and st- staging these different returns so Tom, you, you have an example that you'd like to share with us from one of the most important critical figures of the second half of the 20th century, Roland Barthes. I'm going to hand over to you to tell us more.
0: Yeah, great. I mean, yeah, well, first of all, just talking about the notion of returns and reverberations, you know, Freud doesn't want to give up Gradiva. Um, it's almost, you know, Gradiva, Gradiva is, is a figure, I think, that 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 you can't, how do I explain this? you know she has a life outside of these texts you know she's Mm -hmm. she is an object of desire in this and she's kind of um and and we'll probably come on to that a little bit later Jamie when uh, we talk about your kind of example from art and things but but she's um yeah so for you know there's almost a sense in which Jensen's created this text with her based on this bar relief and um, Freud has um attempted then to kind of um to kind of contain her in a way they both attempted to kind of contain um Gradiva. but she has a life of her own almost yeah mm. um and but before we get to that um that sen- that um thing in art that that you're going to talk about and um, later on Will, um, i wanted to share with you a passage uh, from from Roland Barthes as you mentioned and i thought bart was a as an important person to kind of think about in this respect because the end of that passage that i read was um was really talking about a proto notion of the death of the author you know and, and bart of course one of his most famous essays is this notion of the death of the author mm-hmm. um what how much does the author really know about what he he or she writes? You know, how much are they an authority for their text? Do we go back to what the author's intentions are? And then and does that give us meaning? You know, does that give us meaning to a text? Or are there other forces at work? Are there other unconscious forces at work? Almost as if, you know, the text, once it's been committed to paper and sent off to print. It starts to take on a life of its own, very much like Gradiva takes on a life of her own, you know, in mm-hmm. in the um, in 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 the way that she's written about in the afterlife of the text. Um, but what I'm going to read to you is not about the from the death of the author. It's actually um, it's actually a passage, uh, an extended passage from a, a book called A Lover's Discourse, um, by by Roland Barthes, and and this book is really a way of kind of capturing the way that the um the the love has been spoken about and written about in different ways, um from different responses, from different um writers and from conversations. And it's it's basically almost a compendium and a catalogue of all these different aspects of love, you know, all these different figures of love. And Gradeva is of course one of those figures that uh, Roland Barth refers to. Um, So I'm going to read uh, I'm going to read this passage now um, in which uh, which is just titled Gradiva. So Gradiva, this name, writes Barth, followed from Jensen's book, analyzed by Freud, designates the image of the loved being insofar as that being agrees to enter to some degree into the amorous subjects delirium in order to help him escape from it. So that's the definition that Bart gives us for Gradeva. Part one. The hero of Gradeva is an excessive lover. He hallucinates what others would merely re- evoke. The classical Gradeva, a figure of the woman he loves unknowingly, is perceived as a real person. That is his delirium. The woman, in order to release him from it, gently initially conforms to his delirium, she enters into it a little, consents to play the part of Gradiva, to sustain the illusion somewhat, and not to waken the dreamer too abruptly, gradually to to unite myth and reality, by means of which the amorous experience assumes something of the same function as the analytic cure. Part two. Gradiva is a figure of salvation, a fortunate escape, a kindly Eumenide. But just like, uh, but just as the Eumenides are merely former Erinys, goddesses of torment, there also exists in the amorous realm a wicked Gradiva. The loved being, if only unconsciously, and for motives which may proceed from his own neurotic advantage then seems to be determined to lodge me even deeper into my delirium, to sustain and to aggravate the amorous wound, like those parents of schizophrenics who, it is said, continually provoke or aggravate their child's madness by minor conflictive interventions. The other attempts to drive me mad. For instance, the other sets about making me contradict myself, which has the effect of paralysing any language in me. Or again, the other alternates actions of seduction with actions of frustration. This is a commonplace of the amorous relation. The other shifts without warning from one regime to another, from intimate tenderness and complicity, to coldness, to silence, to dismissiveness. Or finally, in an even more tenuous fashion, though no less wounding, the other sets about breaking the conversation, either by forcing it to shift suddenly from a serious subject which matters to me, to a trivial one, or by being obviously interested while I am speaking in something else than what I am saying. In short, the other keeps bringing me back to my own en pass. I can neither escape from this en nor rest within it, like the famous Cardinal Ballyu shut up in a cage where he could neither stand nor lie down. Part 3. How can the being who has captured me, taken me in the net, release me, part the message? The, me- the message, sorry, by delicacy. When Martin Freud as a child had been humiliated during a skating party, his father hears him out, speaks to him and releases him as if he were freeing an animal caught in a poacher's net. In quotation marks, very tenderly he parted the the meshes which held the little creature, showing no haste and resisting without impatience the jerks of the animal made to free itself, until he had disentangled them all and the creature could run away, forgetting all about the whole episode. Part four. It will be said to the lover, or to Freud, It was easy for the false gradiva to enter somewhat into her lover's delirium. She loved him too. Or rather, explain to us this contradiction. On the one hand, Zoe wants Norbert. She wants to be one with him. She is in love with him. And on the other hand, an exorbitant thing for an amorous subject. She retains control over her feelings. She is not delirious since she is capable of feigning. How, then, can Zoe both love and be in love? Are not these two projects supposed to be different? One noble, the other morbid. Loving and being in love have difficult relationships with each other. For if it is true that being in love is unlike anything else, a drop of being in love diluted in some vague friendly relation dyes it brightly, makes it incomparable, I know right away that in my relation with XY, however prudently I restrain myself, there is a certain amount of being in love. It is also true that in being in love, there is a certain amount of loving. I want to possess fiercely, but I also know how to give actively. Then who can manage this dialectic successfully? Who, if not the woman, the one who does not make for any object, but only forgiving so that if a lover manages to love it is precisely insofar as he feminizes himself joins the class of grand amouroses, of women who love enough to be kind perhaps this is why it is Norbert who is delirious and Zoe who loves.
1: Is so what a lovely text and also like the fact that he's bringing in all of these like really kind of I would argue like quite like separate elements, you know, this mm. bringing in of Martin Freud as a child. Yeah, that... isn't
0: that a lovely? Isn't that a lovely, um, lovely quote that he's pulled out there about kind of you know gradually releasing a kind of. Do you know what? I, I when I was younger, yeah, we had we had a uh, mm-hmm. in my parents' garden, we had a football goal, yeah, mm-hmm. um, and it, and I remember my um my my labrador my pet labrador and she got older she's called penny lovely dog and um and she got uh she got caught up in the net yeah oh. um and it was nighttime, and she and she wouldn't make a noise because she was so frightened you know oh. and, and I remember going out in the garden trying to fight and she was in, and, and cutting this this net apart to be able to really I mean that, that that spoke really personally to me actually this thing of the sensitivity and how frightened you know a human being or an animal can be mm-hmm. when they're trapped in this, and the, the delicacy of of kind of, of what it takes to unravel, but also the vulnerability, right? Of, of yeah. you know, like right? he's talking about his vulnerability as well.
1: Yeah, well, because also like all of the all of the love types that he seems to cover, like it just made me think of like you know what the differences between love is with desire, because mm-hmm. it was a quite. It feels so different. Like love is is care. It's nurturing. It's affectionate. Desire seems so selfish, mm. as well. But but all of that seems to be
0: encapsulated in
1: Grediva. It's like mm. nothing is nothing is free from Grediva.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, because she 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 loves and she's in love at the same time. You know, there's that there's that old kind of Greek separation between the lover and the beloved. You know, the lover pursues. The beloved the, the beloved is a kind of is the object of a chase almost you know a kind of it's almost like a hunt you know between and and the and of course the lover is is kind of masculine in that mm-hmm. kind of greek sense and and the and and the beloved is is the female or the, or the kind of you know so um or, or the or pre boy of course you know so in you know in greek terms so it's um so we've got this kind of notion of of you know this coming together of of those impulses between between love and and um care love desire forcefulness and also this kind of tact and this this kind of you know backing away this sensitivity you know mm-hmm. you can feel like the, that so you can see why you know in in Freud's sense that notion of of drawing drawing something out from the analysand yeah of of drawing out but in this kind of sensitive way and the way we talked about you know talked about dora and transference and the way of falling in love with the analyst Mm -hmm. you know the the vulnerability the power relation in that you know you're never you're never as as vulnerable as you are when you're in love Mm -hmm. i think this is kind of saying and and like the the importance of of that kind of you know how easy it could be to be the wicked creditor yeah
1: it's really interesting because, like, if, of course, you've got this sort of ambivalence to what, what position you are in every mm. relationship. Um, I find that very interesting. I was just, um, it was actually looking at an artwork the other day by Louise Bourgeois and she mm. there's an artwork called of a woman it's a sort of small sculpture of a woman giving birth and it's called I'm pretty sure it's called something along the lines of um don't leave me or or please don't yeah. don't, don't leave me um but who's actually saying it is it the is it the child that's being born who's being separated from mm the mother or is it the mother who doesn't want to be abandoned by the child this kind of ambiguity between what the tone is and it feels like the same thing here in terms of love is like yes we might be the so an individual might be the dominant one um the lover or or the beloved um but you're also both
0: Mm.
1: you're also both
0: yeah there's an there's almost an impossibility um isn't there in in the situation where you are dependent and you depend i mean he says about who can manage this dialectic you know mm. dialectic of dependence and independence um i mean that's a that's a lovely notion because you know of course the the mother is is the is the one that's bringing the child into into existence um but she uh, she experiences the separation you know the, of of mm-hmm. that you know at that moment you know um don't leave me you know uh, there's so much vulnerability in both of those positions yeah know, it's that kind of you know um the idea of being abandoned and deserted and and I think you know what gradiva kind of shows us in that sense is and Freud's reading of it of course is is this notion of um the the care um the vulnerability and just the 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 extreme i guess the, the position of the analyst you know because if you're if you're going down that road route, uh, that road where you're um where you're actively kind of engaging someone's desire in you mm-hmm. you know in that transference you know just the the vulnerability that you're opening up but the importance of also opening up because that's the the that's the key to change you know that, that love is what changes and, and 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 moves moves you forward in a way and and Whereas you rather than getting that very meager satisfaction from the symptom, um, you know, the re, but, but how carefully it has to be cared for, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I also just love this notion of a, this thing about diluting like, you know, oil in, in liquid or, you know, in water or something, you know, a drop of being in love diluted. What a, I mean, what an amazing phrase, <laughs> you know, potion makes it incomparable, you know, just one drop, you know, into, you know, it's kind of like, you know, so, um, and I guess for the theory of psychoanalysis as well, you know, love as as kind of eros later on when Freud will start to use that word, it becomes so important for for all kinds of you know relationships and structures and and things. Um, and it's something that needs to be kind of cared for, I guess. You know,
1: can I just ask about the book that you Please. read this mm. from? Um, so is it like what is Bart? What is Bart going into in the rest of the text? Is it is it kind of like defining? Other terminologies from Freud, or other terminologies, just from I I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, what, well, um, no, what it is, it's it's um. So what he describes as kind of certain figures, yeah, um, figures of of discourse. So, um, so Gradiva is kind of one figure, um, mm-hmm. and then, and and they're all for, and they don't have actually they're not they're very rarely actual proper names. So okay. so like the first one is. Is a is a phrase saying "I am engulfed, I succumb." You know, that's the first figure, and that's right. drawn from from Verta from the sufferings of young Werther. Um, it, It's it's literary figures really that have have, have created a, a way of us kind of, of of defining aspects of love. You know, um, so it's not a kind of catalogue in a way of um of a series of definitions. It's a series of figures that have kind of you know. It's very um. It's an amazing book. There, there is quite a lot of Freud in there, and, and quite a lot of psychoanalysis. But you know, there's also um, the sources are, are, are huge, really. That mm-hmm. They go across. So, and he basically uh, he will refer in 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 the side margin. You'll have the name of you know whoever the inspiration is, or whoever the quote comes from, and this kind of thing. So well worth reading. But it's quite interesting that you know this for for Bart is one of becomes one of the figures of 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 our of our understanding of what it means to be in love
1: mm-hmm.
0: right I mean I think that's probably all I have to say at the moment about Roland Barthes and love but very kind of <laughs> interesting um we could talk for hours on this obviously but um I've uh so that's my kind of literary criticism kind of philosophy bit Jamie but I'm going to hand over to to your field of specialism now which is um art history of course and um and Grädiva's had a particularly um, profound impact, uh, particularly on the Surrealists. That's right, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that is right. And you know, I think for just for today's exercise, I will mostly focus on the Surrealists, just because it's so rich. I mean, they 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 read Freud. Each individually read Freud and then took what they could from it, and you know there are some key figures who really took the Gradiva story and and carried it forward in their work, and um, I think m- more than all the rest, maybe just because he's so high profile, was, was Dali, Salvador Dali, representing Grädiva, representing her in multiple versions as drawings, um, as paintings, as sculptures. You know, she covered, she spanned almost his entire oeuvre. Mm. And, um, and particularly in the drawings and the paintings of her, she's this extremely kind of languid, fraying body um Mm. very slender very slender very bony even um and sometimes even her flesh is being pulled back and Mm. if if she's wearing any clothing at all most of the time she isn't if she's wearing any clothing at all it's kind of ripped she she's she looks almost violated and i think Mm. this is one of the questions that the surrealists tend to play around with i guess around the kind of notion of love is you know is it love or is it desire and i think that that's what i was kind of interested in when you were talking about bart because you know, they kind sort of, of where...
0: kind of sadism or something kind of, yeah. kind of destruction of the loved object or something kind of exactly
1: it's it's um and i think a lot of it comes back to if you think about andre breton one of the mm. founders of surrealist he wrote this text called l'amour fou you know this kind of notion of parental but also just completely uninhibited and Mm. just so um, almost relentless (laughs) love as Mm. a form of kind of expressing an irrational side to our personalities or totally irrational side to our to ourselves and um dali's interest in gradiva though is is a personal one um and fairly autobiographical because he related her very closely or he he linked her very closely with his wife gala and often his portraits of um Grediva were modeled on his wife gala she was the she was sort of the the muse the sitter um and it it was just an expression of complete uh uh lack of it, of inhibition and mm. um it, And desire and desire Um, and it actually culminated finally sort of later on in his career I think in the 1950s actually with a sculpture called Gala Gradiva and this Um, I think is a really nice pairing with what you kind of ended on when you were talking about the text just now this idea of Zoe Gradiva mm. it's Gala Gradiva you know this kind of Yes, I recognize that Gradiva is this sort of fi- fictional character, but it's related to something real in in my life. Mm. But you know, D- Dali's um portraits are obviously the most high profile, but I would argue that the most sort of harrowing image of Gradiva is by the painter Andre Masson, who went in a slightly different direction from the from the original surrealist group from Breton from Dali. He sort of banded together with Bataille and went went down a slightly different route. But mm-hmm. um, he did this incredible painting of Grisiva, of this woman who basically uh, is lying back. She's on a kind of plinth. Um, she has her legs spread, and and you can see in between her legs. But she's and while she's one thing, she's also another. So her torso is not just a torso; it's actually a f- Flank of meat. Mm-hmm. Um, her 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 breast is um, like a, a wasp's hive, and you have wasps going towards it in the background. Um, and one of her feet is stone, uh, while the other one is flesh. So it's kind of the opposite, I guess. To I feel like she's 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 it's the opposite of the kind of Pygmalion story because she's mm-hmm. turning into stone in the image. Um, in the background there's this volcano that's erupting.
0: Oh, right, so similar to the Pompeii scene and everything. Like that.
1: Exactly, mm. except that she's clearly in some kind of museum, and and I think what Masson, um, what makes this sort of really harrowing is that actually a lot of it is about death and, and mm. where love and desire kind of meet for Dali, death and desire meet for masson um right. because it, actually if you look quite closely at the painting you'll notice that there's a shape just to the to the left of of the canvas which is in fact a bayonet now masson mm. um was very uh was on the front line in the first world war mm. and uh he was deeply affected by what he saw he nearly died he was shot um in in battle and and he nearly died and he it became just like a complete like obsession for him this this near death moment um and i would argue that this is what he's representing is not the kind of desirable aspects of Gradeva, but it's her being destroyed by the volcano. Yeah. So it's this fixation with the, with the end of Grediva almost. Um, and actually both of both Freud's, it's a really interesting thing to contrast it with Freud because, you know, with his, with his bar relief that hangs in his study, which is quite a subdued painting of a woman walking yeah. forward. Whereas, I don't think the, particularly the, the notion of walking is not relevant to either Dali or Masson at all. Um, but just bringing it back to the Freud Museum, uh, a contemporary artist named William Cobbing actually produced a um, manhole cover
0: yes, of, of course. Freud's,
1: of yeah. uh, Freud's, Freud's. Copy of Gradiva, which is outside the front of the Freud Museum. So if you ever visit, please do have a look at the manhole cover. That's just on the...
0: the just on the left of the main entrance, right? But by the, the entrance, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And it's really worth having a look at. It's from 2007, and it was a piece that he did called the Gradiva Project. <clears throat> and what he was doing was that by using this sort of image of this Mm. love object as a manhole cover you know he's he's creating this separation between the surface level of what we see on the top and what actually lays underneath gradiva is the is the shield between (laughs) the surface and the sub subterranean level and um, he actually produced a, a, a sort of a twin piece that is at the camden art center so if you're outside the camden art center in in north london not far away from us um, you will see that he produced another gradiva not freud's gradiva he produced masson's gradiva as the manhole cover as mm. the as the separation between what's happening above and below ground. Um as this kind of yeah uh what you were talking about at the end there, this kind of manifest content that that hiding whatever's laying mm. below at the late, latency. Mm. Um yeah, so this is where I will shut up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's so fascinating. I mean, there's so much in this that we get. I wish we'd have done another couple of episodes on this actually, because there's so much we can talk about. But you know, I think one, a couple of the things that really struck me from what you said was firstly that the um is the impact of war. You know, mm. um and and I I do think that this this um this text has, as I said, it was a kind of heroic, optimistic, kind of quite joyful text and uh, period of writing for Freud. You know. He was he was in the early days of psychoanalysis. These new discoveries. It's before the First World War and it's before the breakup of of the psychoanalytic mu- movement. You know the mm. initial kind of breakup of the psyche. You know th- there's a sense in which this kind of serene, a um, loving uh, Zoe Gradiva figure, this coupling, um, is is almost almost like a, a product of the kind of Belle Pock, You know that's kind of of this kind of you know optimism or kind of this kind of, yes, joy, this hopefulness. Kind of you know, hopefulness right um and we're and obviously we're not that far from the collapse of european civilization which and, and you can so you could see how how gradiva could become something else yeah for mm-hmm. you know and even in, in dali's you know that notion of how far you know how desire is linked to to sadism you know and to, yeah. and to decay into the the bones of the and to the ripping apart of it you know so um I think clearly that, that shift, you know, that, you know, in, in that, in the first world war, after that post-first world war, kind of, a, you know, psyche that comes out, what's in the zeitgeist, you know, things transform, you know, and I, I'm reminded of Freud saying about, you know, these, the gods of a previous generation turn into the, the demons of the next one. You know, it's almost like this figure of Gradiva has become kind of haunted by, you know, by this huge kind of shift in, mm-hmm. in, in the European and, and world consciousness that comes out after the war. I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, but... She ends up becoming, I mean, because she is this sort of like, um, I don't know, women, women Women, are historically muses. And I think that she's mm. just essentially like a blank canvas for for so much to be projected onto. Mm. Um, so much kind of inner, inner turmoil and inner kind of, um, right. Mm. Um, working through uh, yeah. emerges in in depictions of gradiva
0: mm. i mean yeah she almost becomes you know the object of desire for the age doesn't she I yes that's you know, a know, very
1: good way of putting it yeah. yes
0: um thank you jamie so much for thank that you. kind of revelation uh, for me as well learning about this kind of you know the and seeing how this figure you know comes to signify so many different things and represent so many different things and that you know it really kind of brings home the fact that you know gradiva is something that you know a woman a representation you know the uncontainability of this figure and and, the, and 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 the resilience really i guess the ability to sh- change and shift and represent so many different things um also makes me think about the kind of the the movement of desire and and what psychoanalysis teaches us about human psyche and and those relations between you know analysand and an analyst but also between um between all of us really as as human beings so thank you so much Jamie thank that you. was that was great that was a lot of fun lovely way to end uh, this session um i'm just going to uh, highlight the fact this is of course the last um of our episodes on Gradiva today um i'd like to thank my co-presenter Jamie Ruers um and to all of you for listening uh, to this series um our next episode of freud in focus will actually be taking a slightly different uh, view um so i will be interviewing uh the curator of our present es- exhibition tracing freud on the on the acropolis uh, uh, marina maniadaki who will be um talking to me really about the influence of freud's um of greece on freud's um, work, but also about um, the letter that Freud writes to Roman Roland on the dis- a disturbance of memory on the Acropolis. Um, so we'll be looking at that letter and how that influenced her kind of curating of this exhibition. Um, so that should give you uh, something to look forward to, anyway. But a final farewell to you all um, and to my co-host, of course, Jamie I uh, Look forward to seeing you or look forward to you hearing us again <laughs> on next um, on the next episode of Freud in Focus. Goodbye.